Lord, we're still a community, and I thank you for those who are. Uh, I think of I think of the group in Illahee right now that are live streaming, and and I think of uh, the various groups around the country and those that live stream at their own homes, and and uh, those all those who may be uh, coming as part of our e church here. So, Lord, I just pray that you can technology, but you don't even need technology. You can just work through our lives and uh, keep us a family. And so, Lord, I pray about this morning. Lord, would your word go forth? Would you feed us? our daily bread, Lord, something that would profoundly impact our lives every time we come to, well, an attempt to eat your flesh and drink your blood. As odd as that sounds, it was, it was the language you used, so help us with that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, you ready for this? Uh, this is gonna be part three, the finale, and everybody said, yeah, right, right? So, uh, no, we're gonna get through this today. So, death was always the plan. We say that again. Death was always the plan. Uh, we, we get this in Revelation, uh, obviously, chapter 13. It said in the NIV, Jesus was slain before the foundations of the world. Jesus was slain before the foundations of the world. In other words, even before anything was spoken into existence, the plan for Jesus to have to come and lay down his life for the world was already in place. It's pretty hard to kind of grasp that. It almost seems like a fairy tale a little bit, like how could that possibly be? But that's what the text tells us. Uh, and where we are in this little, we've kind of taken a little bit of a uh, run here on this, Luke at chapter 18, but I wanna read that to you one more time just so we can set the stage. And I'm gonna give you maybe a perspective that you haven't had about the Torah or the Pentateuch. Sometimes the Torah refers to the entirety of the Old Testament or the law, but in this case, we're gonna look at the first five books in the context of this story, meaning a story where the plan was already in place even before anything was spoken into existence. Now that is mind-boggling. Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Again, he took the 12 aside, said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. We get a picture of Jesus' three or three and a half year ministry based on how many Passovers he went to, and this is it. This is the final Passover. Now he's not just going as a requirement for a observant Jewish man from the northern part of the nation up near the Sea of Galilee. Now he's going well to fulfill the very purpose of Passover in the first place. It says all things which are written through the prophets, all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. He's gonna be handed over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked, he'll be mistreated, and they will in fact spit upon him and he will be scourged and they'll kill him but on the third day he will rise again. Of course the disciples, had no understanding at all. They could not fathom what he was saying. They just didn't understand. What we looked at last week was one facet of this. We looked in the book of Exodus chapter 12. Now again, just as a reminder, all things that had been written is only referring to the Tanakh or the Old Testament, the scriptures that they had at the birthing of the early church. It wouldn't be until almost 400 years later that we would have the fullness of the Bible that we have now based on the rule of law. In other words, does this relate back to the apostles? It's what makes it canonical or straight. How do we know what we have is right? Some of you will hear about the Gospel of Thomas or this or that. But the Bible that we have now is those, are those letters written that had apostolic authority that we can trace all the way back uh, 
to those who walked with Jesus, with the exception of Paul who didn't really walk with Jesus but was confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus. Now that's the New Testament, but really the early church, those first few hundred years, of course we had the letters. I believe they were all written, my personal views, they were all written before uh, with John on the island of Patmos, but most of them were written even before 70 uh, AD because the temple was destroyed in 70 and nobody even alludes to it. I think that people overlook that all the time. But nevertheless, the Old Testament, these are the scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. These are the scriptures, okay? So based on these scriptures, what was written about Jesus and what had to be accomplished, what had to be accomplished? Well, he knew he was gonna have to lay his life down and we see that in Exodus chapter 12 last week and I went into great detail. If you missed that, I encourage you, go back. If you really wanna understand why you go to a church called Church at the Red Door, go back and really grasp that. But again, it allows you to be able to talk about a narrative, really speak a story uh, to someone rather than just these theological points and bullets. You know, Jesus saves and people are like, hey, I don't need to be saved. Or, you know, all these things work from a larger narrative. And this is the epicenter of that narrative, again, written some 13 to 1500 years before the time of Jesus. Are you able to really take that in and grasp the implications of that? In other words, Jesus perfectly walking out the plans of the Father was evidence that he was, in fact, the Jewish Messiah long awaited. They never saw it being one person to be both the suffering servant and the lamb and also eventually the king visible. He's already the king, but one day he will come back and he will be king visible and all, just like Daniel had seen, the son of man would be, all power and authority and dominion would be given to this, whoever this figure was, looking like a man, but clearly even God the Father was turning over all judgment and all authority to this, whoever this is. The lamb, the priest, the prophet, the king, I mean, all those things. The bread of life, the light of the world, I mean, all these things point and arc forward toward Jesus. So I wanna, I wanna just briefly, before we get into these other passages, I briefly wanna give you an idea that even the first five books of, the, of our Old Testament, what would be called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all, even within the, with the books themselves, tell a story. Let me give you an example. Genesis gives us a picture of things that are good. We finish with Genesis chapter two, and it was good. Seven times God says, and it was good, it was good. And then finally, it was very good. It was very good. And then we have the fall, and then the setup for the rest of the story. But right there in Genesis one, we have creation that was good, and then we have the fall. Exodus, well, Exodus is gonna solve the problem of the fall in a way. How does someone get saved? It's gonna require blood, hence our second worship song, it's only in the blood, the blood, the blood. And you hear a lot about blood and people say, why would you talk so much about blood? Because it's the, it's the very, it is the currency, if you will, by which sin was atoned for, the redemption, the price that was paid, but it had to be, as we saw last week, an unblemished lamb. And again, lamb is referred to almost 150 times in the Old Testament. 
30 times in the book of Revelation. And then obviously we see in John 1 where John the Baptist looks up and said, behold the lamb, the lamb of God. And so Jesus was not only the lamb, he was also the shepherd and he was the gate to the sheep. He, he's everything. I, I want you to get that, that Jesus is a fulfillment of virtually every type and shadow that we get in the Old Testament. And the more you understand that, the more solidified, certainly even in your own mind, you, it'll be such an anchor for you as it has been for me through all these years uh, because anybody can say, well, I think Jesus was this and I think Jesus was that and Jesus was this. And, and you get that all over culture. Very, again, I've told you before, I, it's very rare that I get somebody who says, I just hate Jesus. I just, I, I almost never hear that. Now they, may, they di may disregard Jesus, they may not think highly of Jesus, they certainly may not glorify Jesus, but very few people hate. They all have some kind of an opinion. For Jesus, most people, for Jesus is some Gandhi-like figure that was there to try to bring peace to the earth. It was the opposite of the mob or a gang or the cartel or something. It was the kind of anti-cartel guy way back when that brought somewhat peace in people's lives that they would kind of listen to his moral teachings. And they really missed the whole point. So Genesis, we have creation and fall. Exodus gives us a picture of what salvation is going to require, which centers around this idea of the lamb and blood being, being uh, spilled out for the sins of the world. And then what do we have? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus is now what happens after you're saved. It's the sanctification, it's the setting apart, and we'll see that, and Jesus emerges in this sanctification process too. And then we have numbers, and numbers is what happens. This is your life. You were created, you're now fallen, you were born into this, so you were ne you're never fully good, we were born into sin, and then we have a process by which we are saved, and again, this is why Jesus is saying these things must be fulfilled, and I'm the one who's gonna do it. I'm the lamb, Exodus, gives us a picture of the lamb. Leviticus, now the sanctification. You're gonna have to be cleansed and sanctified and set apart. And that's when you go into the wilderness. And then next is numbers. And what happens in the book of numbers? It's the wanderings. They're wanderings throughout the desert. Some take those wanderings and they never fully arc through and go and cross the Jordan and they just stay out in the wilderness their entire life. They are never discipled. It takes intentional mind to say, I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm gonna pick up my cross and I'm gonna get through this wilderness and I'm not gonna just wander around for the rest of my life. I meet so many people that said they had an experience, they did whatever they were supposed to do, they got baptized years ago and their life looks exactly the same, there's no sense of destiny, there's no sense of calling, there's no sense of the utilization of their gifts that they've been given by God, there's no sense in uh, like a people group that they're supposed to reach or a, a missional communities that they're attached to, or they're just wandering around and that's the picture of numbers. And then finally Deuteronomy is Moses and 
through a number of different speeches that he gives uh, and then he goes up on Mount Nebo and dies but he basically says here's what I want you to do once you cross and if you'll if you'll live under this covenant then you will be blessed forever and if you don't you'll be cursed and you'll be cut off and and so here it is and some people it, I don't think it's the proper view but Deuteronomy comes from second law it's just a retelling of the law in some ways but here's how you live under the blessing here's how you live under the curse but then in an ironic change of events guess what he does in Deuteronomy he says oh but by the way there's no way you can do this and you're all gonna fail here's how the blessings come under this covenant this Mosaic covenant here's how the blessings come here how the curses come live live under the law and all oh, you're just gonna be blessed and and don't and you'll be cursed and everybody's like oh we can do that we can do that not like our forefathers and all the ones who wander around the desert we will be the ones who do it and he goes oh, that's a good good thought you're having there but you're all gonna fail but then he hints at a prophet that would come and he's and and then we see later in the prophets that well you're gonna need a new heart and you're gonna need a new spirit on the inside of you so Deuteronomy is really a pointing towards the new covenant, all right? So you with me? So we have creation and fall, we have salvation, we have setting apart, sanctification, we have the desert wandering, everybody goes into the wilderness just like Jesus did, everybody goes. Once you are baptized, you go into the wilderness. You're either gonna wander around out there the rest of your life or you're gonna get intentional about it, you're gonna go through, as an example, you could maybe come to church through a door, I'm gonna go through Rooted and I'm gonna get involved in a group, I'm gonna actually start learning the Bible, I'm actually gonna start being a disciple of Jesus and I'm gonna get through this wilderness and at some point, I'm not gonna live under the old covenant to be blessed, I'm gonna live under the Spirit's guidance and it's gonna take me into the promised land and I'm gonna, well, I'm not gonna take physical land from physical people, but I'm gonna take, I'm gonna take what's mine, which means I'm gonna take spiritual land back from principalities of wickedness in heavenly places, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And I'm gonna see my life as a battle for the rest of my life, for the souls of men. Whatever my gift is, whatever that is, and now that's why I live, to be a light, just like Jesus told me to be a light in the world. And that's it. And there you have just the story encapsulated in the first five books as well. It's really profound. Now, how does this work out? Well, we've looked at Exodus, but how would we see Jesus walking out the fulfillment of sanctification? I'm gonna take you to Leviticus chapter 14. I love this passage, it impacted me so profoundly. The first time I read it, I'm like, well, this is Jesus. This is all, this is so clearly Jesus, because most people, Leviticus, why would I even read Leviticus? About the Levites and all these laws and these ceremonial weird things and the cleansing of the house of a leper and all this, why would I even, that doesn't have anything to do with me in the 21st century. Or does it? Or does it? Leviticus chapter 14, How, what is the law for the cleansing of a leper? What does this even look like? Well, we know in the New Testament that leprosy often is a picture of sin. Now, obviously that's unfair for the lepers because, wow, I, I, I didn't do anything to bring leprosy on myself and now I'm the picture of sin. What leprosy does is it desensitizes you. You know this. 
What does sin do? It desensitizes you. You just feel like you're okay and you're okay and you're okay and you can't feel anything anymore. And you, you get, this is like a hardness of heart. People, lepers don't lose their fingers because the disease takes their fingers. It's that they put their, they put their hand on a hot plate or they touch it and they can't feel. They're desensitized to it and that's how they end up losing limbs and fingers and toes and all that kind of thing. So it's really challenging. Leprosy is kind of a picture of how, what sin is. So just remember that as we see that in the text, verse, four, verse one of chapter 14. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, again, this is the Pentateuch. This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest. Now who's Jesus? He is our high priest, so he's also our high priest. And the priest shall go out to the outside of the camp, thus the priest shall look, and if the infection of leprosy has been healed in the leper, then the priest shall give orders, now catch this, to take two live clean birds, cedar wood, scarlet string, and hyssop for the one is to be cleansed. Okay, so now think about it. You've got two live birds. Here's a picture. Two live birds, okay? You have cedar wood. Was there wood at the lamb sacrifice some years later, Jesus and the cross? Yes. Scarlet string, there's a scarlet string that runs. Not only did they, would they tie this little scarlet string to, the, to this goat and then they would send him out into the wilderness and all these different kinds of things you get. What did Rahab do when, when all the, they, if you'll tie that scarlet string, then you'll be passed over. So you have a scarlet string involved here. That's interesting. Now why would God be doing this? I challenge my Jewish friends, what is, it, what is this? Why, why is this here? Why is this here? Is anybody paying attention to this today? Or has this just kind of been removed with some kind of historical bygone days and a few experts know about this kind of stuff, but or does it, did it have any import for them? It had everything. Certainly the early followers of Jesus who were Jewish, they understood these things. And hyssop, how did they try to, do you remember when they put vinegar up at his lips and they put it on a, hyss, a piece of hyssop? Do you think that's by chance? And what's fascinating to me is the New Testament doesn't even mention this particularly. Oh, remember the cleansing of a leper and when that was hyssop. So they didn't go back and like transactionally make this up later and say, let's go find a story and try to have it unpacked in a way. New Testament doesn't even mention of the things that we're talking about. That, that, that's compelling to me. I have to be honest with you, that's very compelling. The priest will give orders to slay the one bird in an earthenware vessel over running water. Now get this. As for the live bird, he shall take it together with the cedar wood and the scarlet string and the hyssop and shall dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slain over the running water and he will sprinkle seven times the one who is to be cleansed from leprosy and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the live bird go free over the open field. Now, if this isn't a picture of what Jesus wants to do in your life, I don't know why in the world we still cling to a book these thousands of years later that has this in there is just completely and utterly irrelevant for any kind of real life in the 21st century. Or is it? 
Is this instructive? I'm telling you what Jesus is saying, what's written in the prophets and what's written about me must be accomplished. We're headed to Jerusalem. In part, it was the Lamb of Exodus 12, but in part, it was also right here. I'm also gonna be the bird that's gonna be slain and then you're gonna be the bird that's gonna be let go free over an open field and what's gonna happen, all the things that are gonna be at the cross, I'm gonna put them all in this little little, uh, ingredient mix here and uh, guess what and then running water now what happened when they pierced Jesus toward the end the psalmist had said that not one bone would be broken typically towards the end they would break the legs and many of you know this break the legs of those who were being crucified so they could no longer maintain their weight on the cross and then they would collapse and then they actually would die because they couldn't breathe that Jesus was already dead so they didn't have to break his bones now what's fascinating is the prophet said not one bone shall be broken but what did they do they pierced him in the side and out came what this stream of blood and water a picture of I think right back to Leviticus 14 where just imagine yourself at the foot of the cross And you look up and not only is it the atoning blood to make you right, it's also the next phase of your salvation. It's sanctifying, it's cleansing, it's water. The washing of the water with the word. What you're doing right now, if you have ears to hear and eyes to see, is you are taking a spiritual shower. And as you do this, you are let free over the open field. Jesus was the bird that was slain, and you are the bird that has been released. You've been cleansed also of all your leprosy. Forgiven. Not just forgiven, but also cleansed. Cleansed. See, when Jesus is saying, again, all these things that are written must be fulfilled, it's down to such exacting detail, we don't have the time. I mean, we we could spend the next few years, every single week coming here and showing you little facets of what must be fulfilled and what happened when he went to Jerusalem. And that's where we are in chapter 18. The moment has arrived. The moment has arrived. I don't know if that grabs you, but it grabs me. What about our wondering? Does Jesus emerge in our wondering? Does Jesus emerge while we are wandering around in the desert? See, when you first come to Christ, you think, oh, you know, and I've told you this before, but I used to think, oh, Jesus is so lucky to have me. Think of all the great things I can do for you, Jesus. And then I got out in the wilderness and started being confronted with with the well, with the, the chaotic spirit that I had in my own heart, and I began to see myself for who I really was. And uh, there's a wondering, there's a desertness, there's a desert aspect to coming to Christ. It's not all just good. Because you start reading the word and you start to be sanctified and you go, wow, I'm just a prideful, self-centered, blankety blank. And that's how I feel sometimes. I still, still feel that. And I need to get up and I just need to take this water and, and of his word and I pour it over me and sometimes it feels good and feels like a shower and other times it feels almost like it's, almost like it's acid. It just, it's just so difficult to, be, to confront some of the depths of our own depravity as we wander around in the desert. It just is. But there's hope. There is hope. Numbers chapter 21, you're not finished with your attacks from Satan just because you get baptized. In fact, I might suggest that they escalate. 
your attacks from Satan don't stop. Now, the fundamental forces, uh, the Egyptians, were wiped away, right? So when you go through your baptism, uh, the picture of the Red Sea, it closes back in. So in an ultimate way, Satan has no real authority over your life anymore. You have a new master. That's what being born again is. But as you wander around, as you're being transformed into his image, you do have to understand that, well, <laughs> I'll tell you right here, it's uh, Satan's still active. Listen to what happened in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Excuse me, Numbers 21, 6. Excuse me, I got ahead. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Do you realize that, uh, and I, I know this, without the ability to fully develop this, there's a, somebody asked me this week, uh, I think Chris asked me this week about uh, something I had alluded to in a Thursday study. I said, you, you do realize that God uses Satan to accomplish his purposes. There's a great book by Edward Lutzer that is called God's Devil. In other words, Satan can only do what God allows him to do, but he does use satanic activity to, to advance his kingdom, and he uses Satan. In fact, he used Satan. Satan was used to test Jesus when he was in his desert wanderings, right? The Holy Spirit, after Jesus was baptized, led Jesus into the wilderness to be tested. How was he tested? God used Satan to test Jesus. Do you think it's any different for us? Not at all. God is involved in allowing some of the things that occur in your life that are oppressive and are difficult and are challenging. If you don't believe that, then what you believe is that God doesn't have either sovereignty or he doesn't have the power to overcome and keep Satan completely out of your life. God uses fiery serpents to conform you to the image of his son. There is a purpose for all suffering. Count it as joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith will produce endurance and let endurance have its perfect work, making you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what James says. First Peter four, share the sufferings of Christ. Share them. What Jesus say, in this life you will have tribulation. Don't shy away from understanding that God loves you so much that he is willing to actually see the transformation that's necessary for you in the wilderness, even in the midst of suffering, because he has something so glorious, something so powerful, something so incredible in your future, and I'm talking your eternal future and your time on earth, that it's gonna necessitate a real boot camp, if you will. And it's not fun if I, and I'm, some of you have served in the military, but boot camp looks really tough. I just, do you think I could even, I don't think I could make it through boot camp, I'm sorry. I mean, just look at me, I, mean, I'm just, I just don't look like a boot camp kind of guy. But I see them crawling in the mud, you know, going under these uh, barbed wire and, and, and all the different things and carrying those huge packs and running and all that kind of thing. And I just, I just go, Lord Jesus, how do they even? But in a spiritual sense, it's boot camp. If you ever wanna walk into the fullness of your calling and not just wander around forever, 
Are you wandering around forever or do you have a solid sense of your own spiritual destiny in Christ? Well, he sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many died. And so the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned because we've spoken out against the Lord and you and, and intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents. And Moses interceded for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it will come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. In other words, bronze serpent is going to be a picture of Jesus taking on our sin. He became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus is not sin, but he took our sin upon himself, became the bronze serpent, so that when we are bitten and we are wandering, we look immediately to him. Now, that didn't mean just a glance and like, Jesus help. That means the fullness of who he is. That means doing exactly what you're doing right now. If you're taking this word and eating it and, and just eating his word and saying, Lord, transform me, you're eating Jesus. Jesus is the word become flesh. So when we look to Jesus, it doesn't just mean a Hail Mary kind of Jesus when we get in trouble. It means a daily recognition of our own absolute necessity to live upon every word that well comes forth from the mouth of God. If you're kind of winging this thing and just trying to kind of, well, you know, I'm just trying to be the best person I can be, it just won't work. You have to eat, what did we learn last week? You have to eat the whole thing and do it in haste. Do it now, don't wait. That was Exodus 12. Eat it now, eat the whole thing. Don't leave anything over until morning. So to look at Jesus is to look at the totality of what he says is going to make your life both flourish and be productive for his glory. It's a powerful way to think about it. Deuteronomy chapter 18. So we want to be saved. We want to be sanctified, cleansed. We don't want to wander around in the desert forever. We want to be transformed by the testing of the wilderness so that one day we can cross over and not fail like they did because no one can live under the law. But now we've been transferred from the law to the spirit. How did that come about? Through a prophet. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will write, remember, Moses' final speeches. He's about to go and die. He's not gonna make it out of the wilderness. And he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you ask of the Lord and Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore or I will die. The Lord said they have spoken well. They're right. They cannot just come to me on their own. They'll die. The Bible says no man can see the face of God and live. We need an intermediary. I'm going to raise up a prophet among their countrymen like you. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require of him. Now, 
allow me to say, please, that the, all the Jewish people were waiting on this prophet. They were waiting on Elijah to return. They were waiting on this prophet. They were waiting on this messianic figure. Those who were, well, those who were observant in the time of Jesus. If you go forward to John chapter six, and this is important, uh, after having fed uh, the, all the folks by the Sea of Galilee, they gathered uh, them up and filled 12 baskets, this is John 6, verse 13, with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. In other words, they observed these amazing miracles and said, this must be the prophet. This has gotta be the prophet. So they made the connection all the way back to Moses that the only way to get through is not to live up under the law, but what they were being introduced is it's gonna have to be a spirit-led life. Spirit-led life. All these things had to happen to Jesus. It was, well, the plan was completely in place even before the foundations of the earth were laid. It was always the plan. You think about it, these disciples 2,000 years ago, is anything really different? They didn't understand this stuff. <laughs> they just didn't understand it. It's like, I don't get it. Is anything any different 2,000 years later from Jesus' disciples? If we go out here in the Coachella Valley and, and begin to ask, well, tell me, uh, give me the story of the message of God towards all of humanity. Just try to just encapsulate that for me. Uh, just get, get some of the answers. Imagine some of the answers that will come at you. Some will think of from a political standpoint. Some will think uh, just about abortion or think about some LGBTQ issue. Or somebody will think about this and they'll see it th through a unique lens that is very culturally derived. Something or something they heard or they read an article or something. So few people understand what we're talking about right now, the plan was always for Jesus to die, not just to teach. Oh, he was a teacher. But he came that he might destroy the works of the devil, and to do that, he was gonna have to lay down his life. Has anything really changed? What's the path that everybody has to follow? You have to come out of Egypt. You've gotta repent. You've gotta go through your baptism. You've gotta, in the name of Jesus, be forgiven of your sins and then receive the gift of the Spirit, get through the wilderness, through the guidance of the Spirit, and a community that teaches you the Word where you can really understand what it means, and then move into your destiny. You're not just a Christian, you're someone who is called to battle the forces of darkness on, the, on behalf of God. This is what makes you an evangelical, not who you vote for or where you live. An evangelical is just someone who evangelizes, who, who uh, the Evangelion, it's a, it's a preaching of the story of Jesus. That's what an evangelical, a true evangelical is. I don't allow the world to describe what I am, but I happily say that I'm evangelical if, in your, if you will allow me to define it before you try to put me in some political category or social category or somebody who, you know, ran on the Capitol on January 6th and those were the evangelicals or somebody and there or some social issue. I'm not saying none of these things matter. But that's not what defines me. And it shouldn't define you. 
I want the, look, what we want is we want to happen to us what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. The scales need to fall off of our eyes so that we can see the plans of God, not just for the church as some monolithic entity, that the scales would fall off my eyes so that I can see that I need to get through the wilderness. Or some of you may need to come out of Egypt for the first time and give your life to Jesus and be baptized and be filled with the Spirit and then go through your wanderings, but make it fast. Don't spend 40 years out there. Get through the wilderness. Be transformed into his image to the place where you can cross the Jordan and move into your calling. The church will never change. People, I hear all the time, oh, Barna research and this, and churches are closing, and people aren't, and I'm just like, I don't care. I, I, I mean, I care, but I don't care. I have, to keep my, I have to keep my eyes ahead. There's only certain, I have a calling, and I'm gonna steward the calling, and I don't care what goes on around me. I am going to finish my race. And we as a church, yeah, it was hard. COVID was difficult on this church and not even been able to meet for two years. And I look, it's been challenging, but it doesn't matter. We put our nose right back to the grindstone and we say, come on, let's go. Uh, the calling hasn't changed. Calling hasn't changed in any way, shape, or form. And lastly, I just want you to think about this. I want, and I'm not, gonna, I'm not even gonna take you to these verses, you can, but you can write these down and then go back and read these chapters. But I just want you to think now all the things that were established before the foundations of the earth. Your life. Think about this for a second. Ephesians chapter 1, you know what it says? He chose us in him before the foundations of the earth. Not only was Jesus slain before the foundation of the earth, that was already part of the plan. You, if you've been called by Christ to be a follower and you've accepted that and gone through your baptism and been filled with the Spirit and into the wilderness and potentially into your calling, you were chosen in Him before the foundations of the earth were laid. Really? That just seems so impossible. And again, allow me to say, everything is impossible about us. There shouldn't be a cosmos something coming out of nothing. Everything, as I told you at Easter, everything's fantastical. There is no non-fantastical answer to your existence. And that is why people trying to make some non-fantastical, give some non-fantastical answer about just being a materialist doesn't work and why people are committing suicide and running around killing people because they're having existential, an existential crisis of why they are even here. Materialism says you are nothing. This is not the story here. You were chosen in him before the foundations of the earth. John chapter 17 simply says that God loved us before the foundations of the earth. And God loved Jesus before the foundations of the earth. If he chose us, he loves us. But John 17 says he loved Jesus before the foundations of the earth were even laid. 1 Peter 1, Jesus was foreordained. In other words, his time on earth was all planned before the foundations of the world. Matthew chapter 25, believers will inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for us from the foundation of the world. You do realize that this forever kingdom that all the prophets were talking about, and by the way, that, that is the biggest picture of his resurrection, is that it's a forever kingdom, that the king's gotta die but then the king will rule forever. 
You can't just have a dead king ruling forever. You've got to have a resurrected king that rules forever. And that kingdom has been planned before the foundations of the earth were laid. It was always the plan. Not just his death, but his total past, present, and future glory was always the plan. Nothing's catching God off guard. Finally, Matthew chapter 13. Jesus, by speaking parabolically, is actually uttering secret things that have been kept secret, as he said, from the foundations of the earth. As Jesus would begin to teach in these parables about the kingdom of heaven is like, and the kingdom of heaven is like, and the kingdom of heaven is like, they're just like, this is blowing their minds. And remember what they said. He's not teaching us like our rabbis. He's teaching as if well, as if one with authority. When he teaches, it's different. And of course, he was backing it up with things that terrorized the demonic realm and they would flee and don't, don't throw us into captivity and you know, on and on. Just like Moses, the uh, same thing was said about Moses is that his, he did works that terrorized the people. Meaning, he's got so much power, it's just unbelievable. So Jesus would speak in these parables about things that they couldn't possibly understand. And he said, well, <laughs> these have been secrets hidden from the foundations of the earth. And the more you follow me, the more you're gonna understand it. Now, some of you are here and you're kind of like, I don't really even, I'm not sure I followed this morning. That was a lot of stuff and you know, it felt like kind of a fire hydrant. I get that all the time. <laughs> and some people don't come back and I understand that. But what, what I'm challenging you to do is that wherever you are, if you'll just take a next step. You know, my task every single week I come in here, and I've told you this before, some of you maybe don't even know Jesus or somebody might watching doesn't even know Jesus. And then others just have kind of come to Jesus, but they've never really been around any kind of Bible teaching. And then some, some people could come up here and, and school me in all of this. I mean, we have people all on all across the board that are part of Church at the Red Door in our extended community. And how do you give people just a next step? I'm challenging you wherever you are. If you're in Egypt, get baptized. Come out of Egypt. Come out of the world. Choose to follow Jesus. If you've been baptized and filled and God's spirit indwells you, don't just hang around and not be sanctified. Read, read Jesus. Think Jesus. Eat Jesus' flesh. Be transformed. Don't just wander around the wilderness forever. And ultimately, cross. But don't live under the law now. Live under the spirit. And watch what God does with your life. Now, by the time some of you may watch this, we don't know what he's going to shoot, but some of you who are golfers will have uh, seen the PGA Championship this last few days and that there's this club pro that is actually tied for eighth. And he's kind of taken over the whole narrative. He really has. People are applauding and going crazy for this guy named Michael Block. I've known Michael for 30 years. He's uh, he's. He's only 46. I can't imagine how young that is, but that's old for the PGA Championship. I got to play in the PGA at Medina when Tiger won, and uh, I didn't make the cut. And part of that is I just didn't even believe, I don't know that I really deep down felt like I could make the cut. 
you know, well, we're just club pros out here, you know, try not to get in anybody's way, you know. And I remember pulling into Medina in Chicago and kind of coming in, and Tiger would go up very, very early in the morning so that nobody would, he could get a practice round in without having to sign 10,000 autographs. And uh, it was only like 7 o'clock, and he was already coming up number 9 with his little entourage and everything. And I'm thinking, and I had been in a field with Tiger before, but then I'm looking around and I go, what am I doing here? That's Tiger Woods. Not so with Michael. Somehow Michael has on his ball, I don't know if you've read this, why not? You know that? That's what he's on his, he had tailor-made, put on his ball, not that he wrote it, it's already inscribed on there, like, just like the numbers, why not? Which kind of like, why not me? Why not now? Why not? If all this stuff, why not? I'm like, I'm telling you, there are 26,000 club pros around this country right now and all of us, I'm telling you, all of us have already put ourselves like, what would I be thinking if I was Michael? How did, how did he do that? He had a driver in a hole where Kepka and Chambo hit eight irons. On their second shot, he had a driver on a par four. What are you doing out here? You're too old, you're too, you know, there's just no way. And he's having the time of his life. It's one of the great stories. If he were to win this tournament, I can't imagine it would be the case, but. But there's so much, I, I literally was watching that yesterday and I just had uh, numerous times. It was weird. I just kind of teared up. I'm like, this is, da this is da David Goliath, David wishes he wasn't this much of an underdog. I mean, you know, I mean, just, just and people are, New York is just like, ah, they're just pulling for him and everything and hoping he, somehow he can pull this thing off. Why not? Why not? I'm asking you the same question. Why not you? Why not now? When are you going to do this? When are you going to start following Jesus? When are you going to get serious about the wilderness? When are you going to get serious about being sanctified and cleaned up and get your act in order so that you can be a part of a missional community who's, well, who's doing something even way more important than any winning any golf tournament? Why not? Why not? Close with this, 2 Timothy chapter 1. By the way, Ephesians 2 says, our very life callings were prescribed before the foundations of the earth. The works that were prepared before the foundations of the earth for us to walk in. You're saved by grace through faith and not of your works. But once you're saved, once you go through your wilderness experience, and once you, get, once you become more and more conformed to the image of Jesus because you're intentional about it, you're not just wandering around in the Christian you know, ethos here is that you're actually becoming someone who looks and acts and speaks like Jesus, not perfectly, only he's perfect, but you'll realize that he has plans for you that were also created before the foundations of the earth. And then finally, Paul told young Timothy this, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Number one, saved, sanctified, get through the wilderness, don't just wander around, and then, well, it's no longer just obey and be blessed, the, the law, but now be led by the Spirit, Deuteronomy, and it sends you on into your destiny and your calling, which, by the way, is war. But you are saved and what? He saved us and called us. Please understand, I think oftentimes people think, is this, how do you get saved? Will you do this, this, and this? Okay, good, I got that handled, and then they just quit. They don't realize, and they just stay in the wilderness. They don't even realize there's a wilderness. You're saved and called. Saved and called, what? 
with a holy calling. This is a holy, holy, sanctified thing that we're talking about. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ. What? From all of eternity. Your very life, your calling, your destiny. Or you can just live like the world lives, get as much in the bank, you know, retire as quickly as you can, play as much golf and pickleball and tennis and go to as many dinners as you can and then at the end of your life say, well, I've had a pretty good life. That's, that's where we live, that is the Coachella Valley. I mean, you know, when you're, when you're driving in from LA or you fly into Ontario and you're coming up Interstate 10 and you see the big billboards, what do you see? You see people carrying their own cross, following Jesus, hoping to become light, walking through the wilderness, being bitten by fiery serpents, you know? Is that what you see? Well, maybe we should. Maybe, maybe somebody should pay. We should put up a big billboard and say, come follow Jesus with us. Pick up your cross and hear serpents and all that. No, you see people out by pools, you know, with umbrella drinks and they're all, they all they're the, you know, the perfect 50-somethings or whatever they look like and they have no knee replacements and they don't have any shoulders, they don't have any sprained wrists and they all have, you know, plus two handicaps and they just love and their whole, all their families is just in perfect place and all their kids are married off to doctors and lawyers and, and uh, you know, it's just, that's, that's, what it, that, that's, the, that's the normal course. You think this is normal? You think you just fall into this? Mm -mm. No, you don't just fall it into us.